Good morning. Good to see you all. You can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under some seats nearby. And in those Bibles, 2 Samuel 7 is on page 259. And if you're newer to exploring Christianity or you don't don't own a Bible, you can just keep that one. We would love for you to take that uh, with you so you can um, have it for your own. Well, what we're doing in these weeks is is going through a series of sermons that takes us through the storyline of the Bible. We're seeing that the Bible really tells a unified story of the world and that you and I are part of this story. So it's not just a detached story in a book, but it's a a story that tells the true story of the world. And this story gives us the most satisfying answers and foundations to uh, what are some of the biggest questions we ask as humans. And um, the biggest things that even seem most obvious in the world, this story gives the most satisfying foundation uh, for. So, for instance, why do we believe that justice matters? We certainly believe that as uh, a society. Why do we believe that there's good and evil and that those are meaningful categories? Why do we believe love is real and meaningful? Why do we believe that all human life is valuable? So we want to step back and ask the question, what story gives the most satisfying answers to those questions? And we're seeing that the answer in the story of the Bible um, is the most satisfying one, that the Bible tells us a story of God's unfolding grace for sinners and sufferers, that God Himself is a triune God of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, the source of all truth and goodness and beauty, and He creates us as an overflow of His goodness. And though we were made in His image to reflect His rule, we failed, and so there's brokenness and injustice, and we're longing for Him to make all things new. And one day he will. One day he will bring his kingdom into this world in its fullness, and the world will become a kingdom of peace and of justice. And this is what we see in 2 Samuel 7. So this is another high point in the Bible. God promised to bring his kingdom into the world through the line of King David. So we're seeing this big story And that the longings of all our hearts for the kingdom to come in the future, uh, this story travels through this promise to David. We call this the Davidic covenant. Uh, The Hebrew word that we can use to describe what God's kingdom is like is the word shalom. That's a Hebrew word for peace. And it's often used in context to refer to flourishing and harmony and universal communal joy. It's what everyone wants and needs. Most deeply, we feel the weight of the injustices of our time. We grieve the loss of people that we love. We're burdened with political strife. We're worn down by relational, relational friction. And so we all need and want shalom. And this is why the promise that God made to David 3,000 years ago is so important for us. God was promising that he would bring an eternal king and kingdom of shalom It's the restoration of everything that was lost in Eden, but better. Everything in the Bible story flows into this promise to David and then flows out from it. And David knew this when he received the promise. So let's read this story 
in 2 Samuel 7, the first 19 verses, and then pray together and consider it. Now when, king, now when the king, David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, I, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan, prophet, said to the king, go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving what is now this ancient promise, but always relevant. And we pray that you would help us to understand it and that you would open our hearts to receive uh, this promise and enjoy your rule over our lives through Jesus. And would you give us hope in the midst of all our sorrow and sadness and brokenness and longings. We pray that you would give us the hope that only you can give. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's the message of this text. God will bring his kingdom for the good of the world. So in light of that, let's lodge our hope in Jesus. So we'll walk through this in three steps. We'll see the principle of grace first, an eternal kingdom, and true hope for our world. So the principle of grace. 
The whole Bible we're seeing is a story of God's grace for sinners and sufferers, and it's a story that magnifies His grace from beginning to end, God's character, His glory, uh, and especially His grace are on display and highlighted. So this is the first lesson that God wants David to know in this text. Before God gives David this great promise of an eternal kingdom, He wants to remind David about the radical principle of grace. So let's see this. So David is in his palace, in his kingdom. God has given rest to Israel and David from their enemies. And next to the palace is the tabernacle. So this is the tent that God had Israel build that was the symbolic place of God's special presence for Israel. It was a portable temple. So they're settled now in the land and this portable temple, this tabernacle is brought to Jerusalem near the palace that David is in, this house of David's. And so David's sitting there in his house and next door is the tabernacle, God's house in a sense. And so David's thinking here, I have a palace and God is living in an old RV. And so you can imagine that it's reasonable what he would be thinking, right? Let's build something more permanent and substantial for God. He's been so kind to us. And so he tells Nathan that he wants to build God a better house than this tabernacle. But on that night, I mean, that's a noble desire that David has. But on that night, God sent Nathan a message to deliver to David. And he wanted David to remember this principle of grace. So he reminds David that his blessing is one way. Uh, Their relationship does not need David to do anything for God and to God, most fundamentally. God is the God who gives. It's one-way grace, one-way blessing. And so God says to David in verse 5, would you build me a house to dwell in? And God says, you know, I've traveled around in this tabernacle. I asked them to build it. I traveled around. Have I ever asked for anything differently than this? The answer is no. Then look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. I mean, David was just a shepherd. And, and I did that so that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. In other words, God has been the one blessing David from day one, given David everything he has. And then he says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great one, names of the great ones of the earth. So he says he's going to continue to give Israel rest from their enemies as well. He reminds David that he's the source of all David's blessing. David's king because of God's grace. David has victories because of God's grace. David is living in his own house because of God's grace. And here's why this principle is so radical for David to hear at this moment. In the ancient Near East, many kings would pay for their God's blessings by building their God a temple. So they'd essentially say to their God something like this, I'll build you a temple, and then because I do that for you, you bless us. You give us victory over enemies. You give us safety and rest and protection. And so the message from the God would be something like, because you built me a temple, I'll give you success. I'll give your people rest from their enemies. It's a principle of works. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. This is the principle of every other religion. When we work, then the divine will bless us. We work for approval and love. And God is reminding David 
of the radical principle of grace, just to make it clear, though it seems like David had a noble purpose in his heart and mind here. God wants it clear. He's saying, I have already blessed you. I am going to bless you. And so I don't need you to do something to earn this blessing. It's all grace. So before God makes this incredible promise to David, he wants to remind us of grace. And this is good news. Every religion is at bottom and in the end, if taken seriously, exhausting or discouraging or bewildering. We're either exhausted from trying to follow the rules and take the steps or we are discouraged because we recognize we can't actually measure up or we're bewildered. We wonder what is our status with this God or these gods? Where do I stand? Am I doing enough? Have I made it? Do I measure up? And God says in love, you can't measure up. Uh, You're worse than you even think. If I was to give you steps, you wouldn't be able to take them. In fact, that's one of the central messages of the Old Testament in giving the law, uh, that we fail. But God's message is also, I am far more gracious than you would ever even think up on your own because my grace is one way to you. I come to you in your failure and need and bless you and give you grace. And I call you to trust me and to receive and to lay down your striving to earn and just receive You don't need to be worthy of my love to love you. I love you. So if you're not yet a Christian, this is the heart of what I hope you hear this morning. You don't need to figure out how to change your life and make it better and improve yourself in order to prove to God that you're worthy of his care or blessing or love. We don't change first. We come to Jesus who's done everything for us, who's died for our sins, for our free forgiveness and welcome. And we come. We acknowledge his blessing. We rest in his blessing. We hope in his future blessing. And we take our exhaustion and we just fall into his ocean of grace. And then we follow Jesus. And as Christians, we need to keep reorienting to this uh, because we can function as if this isn't actually how God works with us. So here's just an example that may relate to some of you. Um, it is important, critical, to have time to cultivate a relationship with the Lord, right? To hear from Him in His Word, to pray to Him. We want to do that through the day. We also need to carve out special time to do that. But what can happen is we can carve out 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, something in the morning, and do that. And we can start to assume that because we did this, God's going to bless us today. And if our day goes poorly, especially if we've been faithful, we can think, what is going on here? God, I've been really working to cultivate my time with you and to do this and to walk in wisdom and what's with my circumstances? You know, and when we feel that way, it's showing that we are basically carving out 15 minutes to build a little temple for the Lord so that he would bless us. Um, And so we're operating on this principle of works and God says, I have blessed you. I will bless you. Even suffering is used for your good. And I will surely bless you in the end, in the eternal kingdom to come. I don't need you to build me a temple in order to earn this stuff. Uh, And so then, if that's the case, then we say, well, what a relief. And so now I I just want to get to know him. I want to read the Bible and pray because I want to know this good, gracious God that I don't need to prove myself to. 
Um, so this is the principle of grace, and it's good news for exhausted uh, people like us. So that's that principle. Now, second, an eternal kingdom. This is the heart of this promise. God promises an eternal kingdom through David's line. So look at verse 12 with me. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so he's saying, after you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He'll build a temple and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David will die, but God will raise up an offspring after him and establish his kingdom forever. So an eternal kingdom, no end, through David's line. And then God promises that this king, the relationship that God will have with this king will be like the relationship of a father and a son. Look at verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me, God says, a son. So God is the true king, and the human king will reflect his rule and be in this father and son relationship with him. So Adam was the first called the son of God. And if you've been tracking with this series, you saw that Adam was appointed as a royal ruler. So Adam was to rule and be a king in this father-son relationship with God, but he failed. Israel then is given this calling to be a kingdom as well, and they're called God's son. And we've seen that they fail time and time again. And now a king from David's line will be called a son of God, and he'll relate to him like a father. Now, if you've been a Christian for many years, you're hearing this promise and thinking a son of God and a king, this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But we do need to think this through, uh, because look what God says next in verse 14. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a a son, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. So this king needs to be a faithful son. And if he sins, he'll be disciplined by the Lord. So what's going on here? Well, there's really big picture here. There's two ways that this promise could be fulfilled. One way is through a succession of kings. So there can be an eternal kingdom through David's line if generation after generation after generation, a king rises, but is a sinner like the rest, and a son, a son of God, but unfaithful, dies, another king comes, and this goes on forever. The kingdom's forever, the throne's forever, but failed kings keep taking the throne. The other way this could be fulfilled is by one faithful son who will live forever. An eternal faithful son who does not need the discipline of the Lord for his sin because he does not sin perfectly reflecting God's good and just rule like humanity was always meant to do from the beginning. So what did happen? Well, both happened in a sense. David's line continued. Generation after generation, David had someone from his line on the throne, but they failed. David failed epically. David's son Solomon failed to know and worship and love God in many ways. Many kings after that failed. None of them was truly a faithful son. Eventually Israel was judged with exile and sent out of the land, like Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden, and that throne was emptied for hundreds of years. But David's line did continue, though there wasn't anyone ruling as a king. And then a young man and a young woman, both from David's line, were engaged to be married. 
And the Lord sent an angel to the woman and said this, and we read of it in Luke chapter 1, Do not be afraid, Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. Remember what God promised David? I will make your name great. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Finally, a faithful son will come after centuries of failed kings. And then at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven, God the Father says, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased faithful son. And to call Jesus God's son doesn't always simply mean that he was divine. It's a statement that this, this one is the true and faithful king from David's line. So when we read that Jesus, you know, side note here, as you're reading the New Testament and you read that Jesus is called the son of God, uh, that often will indicate one of two meanings, not just one. Sometimes we read that and think he's divine. He's the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Son of God. And often that is what it's referring to. But in many cases, what it's referring to is not that he uh, is divine, it is first meaning here, but actually that he's the fulfillment of this promise to David. He's the true and faithful human king from David's line. So to call Jesus the Son of God is sometimes actually a reference to his humanity, but his true and faithful humanity as a son of God, perfectly obedient, perfectly reflecting his father's good rule. So we can put it this way then. When Jesus came, the divine eternal Son of God became the human Davidic Son of God. Does that make sense? In both senses there, he's the Son of God in his divine um, eternal relationship with the Father, but he came to also be the human Davidic Son of God, the faithful human Son, doing what we have failed to do as God's obedient children. And so this is how God fulfills his promise to David, for God the Son to become the faithful Son of God in David's line, to then bring God's kingdom into the world forever. Let's move on to our last step here, true hope for the world. So this is not just an ancient promise uh, to an ancient man about an archaic idea of a kingdom. This is actually the true hope that we need and true hope for our world. This is the fulfillment of what our world and every human heart most deeply wants and needs. And David understands this. Look at how he responds in verse 19. He says to God, You have spoken also of your servant's house, which is David's lineage, for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So he calls this promise instruction for humanity, instruction for mankind. So your translation may sound different than that. Some versions have translated this something like, and this is a promise for a mere human, as if David's thinking, wow, what a big promise for such a little guy like me. I'm amazed at this moment. No doubt that kind of humility is going on in his heart. We see that here. Um, but the English Standard Version, which is what I usually used here, is, is right, I think. It's instruction for mankind. That's the, the best translation here. This is not just a big promise for a little guy. This is God's biggest promise for all humanity. 
He's saying this is instruction for humanity. He gets the epic proportions of this promise. This is how God will make all things new. This is how God will bring justice and peace to every nation on the planet. This is how God will restore the lost shalom that humanity experienced in Eden in the beginning. So let's step back and just connect this promise to the big story like David is doing in his mind. So in the beginning, God created the world to be a kingdom. When you hear Jesus announce the kingdom of God is at hand, the very, when you, when you think, where did he get that idea? Where's that coming from? What's the kingdom of God about? It doesn't just show up in the New Testament. It actually started in Eden. Eden is the kingdom of God. God's the king and ruler over all things, and he creates his realm and then appoints Adam and Eve to rule and subdue it, to reflect his glory, to bear his image and reflect his character and his rule in the world, to spread his rule. So that's the kingdom of God, and shalom was there. So Adam was actually called a son of God for this reason. He was to be God's faithful son over all things. But Adam and Eve failed, and God sent them out of Eden. And the whole world is now yearning to get back, yearning for peace, yearning for justice, yearning for goodness. We know we're not made for death. I mean, some of you that may have lost a loved one recently, don't you just feel like, I do not have words, I don't even know how to feel. If I was to give my space time, myself space time to grieve, which we have to do, I don't even know how to do that. Everything seems wrong. And the, there's a reason for that. It's because we were not made to have to handle death. We were made for a world of life and goodness and peace. And so we're living in a time where just we weren't made for no wonder we don't even know how to respond to things and we go numb and we can't handle all the information that's coming at us. So we're longing for the end of violence and racism and poverty and wars and broken relationships. And then God gave this master promise to humanity in Genesis 3.15 saying that the offspring of Eve, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of Satan the instigator of this mess in the first place. He would be a true king, a faithful son, and he would conquer evil and restore shalom to this world. And then the Bible traces this promise. If you read the book of Genesis, it seems like one of its main messages to communicate is watch this promise unfold. And so we see that line traced through Eve, and it comes to a man named Abraham, and God promises that through Abraham, this blessing is going to come to the world. And then we follow Abraham's line, and it becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we get to the end of the book of Genesis, and we realize that the king is actually going to come. This conquering uh, serpent crusher king is going to come through the tribe of Judah. The book of Genesis ends with this great promise in Genesis 49.10. To Judah, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him, this tribe of Judah, someone from the tribe of Judah, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. So this king will come through Judah's line. And then that's traced continually, and it comes now to David. David from the tribe of Judah, and God says, through you, through your offspring, offspring of Eve and Abraham, Judah, now through David, this kingdom's going to come. This king is going to come. An eternal king, a faithful son. Generation after generation, sons failed. 
David failed, Solomon failed, kings failed. And the prophets would speak into this time, looking for this perfect son of David, the son of God to come. And eventually it went from longing for something just not just better. We, don't, we just don't just need a better ruler. We need a perfect ruler. And they started to hold up this ideal, saying if only David would come back, but better. A perfect David would come back and fix. And so with each new king, are you the king? Are you the one? Are you going to be the one to restore peace to this world? And the answer was no and no and no until Jesus came. And then Jesus comes, and what's he do in his ministry? He basically takes those blessings of Eden and and spreads them around, right? Casting out demons, right? Get out of here. Healing people from disease and sickness. Forgiving sins and restoring people to God. He's not just doing tricks to show that he's divine, He's showing that he has come to bring back what we all long for and lost in Eden. He's bringing God's kingdom into the world. He said, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so then through his resurrection and his ascension, he took the throne of David, this eternal throne, and he was installed as the true king. That's what Peter announced several weeks after Jesus' resurrection to the people of Jerusalem. He said, he is now Lord in Christ. He is on David's throne. The kingdom has dawned. And so repent and believe this good news and come under his good authority and grace. So this kingdom's already begun. And we're waiting for the fullness to come when Jesus returns and makes all things new and fills the world with shalom again. Peace. So how do we respond to this? Well, I feel like it's almost trivializing to try to say a few things here, Um, because we to live in part of this story and find our hope and meaning and identity in this. Let's consider a few of these ways. Uh, Three things, thankfulness, hope, and purpose. So first, thankfulness. Let's intentionally create space in our life to feel and express deep gratitude to God for this. That's how David responds. He gets this principle of grace. He gets that God has given him everything that he has. He receives this promise of an eternal kingdom coming through his line and sees that this is the hope for humanity. And then he responds in verse 18, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? We can all say that. Who am I that I could get in on this and that the Lord would forgive me and bring me under the rule of King Jesus? And if you've not yet trusted Christ, you are invited to and called to come under the good authority of Jesus as king. He invites you to do that. He calls you to do that, to come under his grace and authority, receive forgiveness, follow him as your king. If you have questions about what that would look like, um, if you have a Christian friend, I encourage you to talk to them about it. You can talk to me about it. I'd love to talk to you. If you, if you feel like you are even this morning coming under the King Jesus' authority, I would love to meet with you and talk to you about what it looks like to follow him from here. Second, hope. Let's put our hope in Jesus' coming kingdom. It started, and when Jesus returns, he will bring it in its fullness. The world, this world, will be filled with peace and justice. The hope that Jesus gives us then is not ultimately escape from this life. When we see all the brokenness and sadness, our ultimate hope is not, I can't wait to die to go to heaven. That is a hope, and it is better because Jesus is there. But our ultimate hope is that Jesus would come back 
And if we have died before then, raise our bodies from the dead and reunite us with it again so that we can live on a new earth filled with peace and justice and shalom. That's our ultimate hope. So as we see the brokenness of the world, we long then for and we put our hope in Jesus who will come to fix everything, to set everything right and make everything new again. And so we experience heartaches and we hope in Him. And then finally, purpose. Let's see that we receive our purpose as part of this particular story. We find our purpose in Jesus' kingdom. Remember that our purpose from Genesis 1, the very beginning, is to know God and to reflect His rule in the world. We were made to be rulers, uh, to spread His joy, to reflect His character, to rule as God rules in the world. And we've failed, and we have not reflected His rule. We've not spread His goodness in the world. And when we failed, Jesus came to do what we failed to do, right? He came as the faithful son. He is the true image of God, reflecting the Father to the world. But he didn't just come to do that perfectly, nor did he come just to forgive us for our failure through his death. He also came to restore us to this calling. So after his resurrection, he pours out his spirit into the world, giving new hearts and transforming people to live according to how we were always made to live now. So as we become Christians, we receive God's grace and forgiveness, and then by His Spirit's power, we, we become like Jesus, the true King, to reflect His rule in the world. And what we're doing then, if you think about it, where we're at in the story, we're waiting for the kingdom to come, where we will be perfectly transformed into the image of Christ to reflect His rule. And in the meantime, we're giving one another and the world a little picture of what that true kingdom is going to look like when it comes. We're under the authority of Jesus. We're citizens of his kingdom right now. So we're kind of part of an embassy in this world. And we're inviting people to say, hey, look at what we were always meant to be like. And this is what's coming in its fullness. And we fail epically at this, don't we? Often. Even that, though, can be a point of the coming kingdom because it says it's not perfectly happening here. We are sinners, but we have a perfect Savior who is renewing us and forgiving us, and he welcomes you into this as well as we wait for the day when he comes back. So we, we then have this privilege of living together, uh, enjoying peace and flourishing and harmony, repenting when we fail, asking for forgiveness when we fail, but really enjoying this. And this matters in everyday life. We reflect his rule in your workplace at 2 p.m. on this Thursday. You have an opportunity to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom with Jesus as your king. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that you have sketched this story and given us the privilege of participating. Thank you that we don't have to wonder if life has meaning. We don't have to wonder if you're really there. We don't have to wonder if justice will come. We don't have to wonder uh, if you love us. You have communicated that you do, and you've shown it to us in Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing in the world, and we pray that you would give us great hope and joy and thankfulness as we participate. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we uh, gather to honor God, to hear from His words, to sing, to pray, and 
to encourage one another and to build each other up and to welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed us. And so um, at this time, I encourage you, if you're comfortable, to stay and meet one another, get to know one another, enjoy friendship with one another. And so let's receive a benediction from God's Word as we go. May the Lord make us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that He may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints as we look ahead to the fullness of the coming kingdom. Go in peace to love and serve.